This episode of Atomic Moms is brought to you by Speakaboos, the only interactive digital library designed for pre-K through second grade. Go to speakaboos.com or your app store for a free trial. Start building your child's love of reading today. Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week we celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and moms around the world. I felt like when I had children, I was going to teach them to know their rights. And if an officer doesn't have a warrant, he's not allowed to search you and call me or call an attorney immediately. And now we're in survival mode. It's really daunting. And I'm not quite sure what I'm going to tell him yet because I never want him to cower. Like, I don't want him to live his life feeling like he has to make himself smaller to be less intimidating. But I also want him to survive. So it's this this weird and heartbreaking and challenging conversation that we keep having to have and unfortunately we just haven't arrived at an answer yet okay y'all uh i just put on some lip gloss it was my confidence booster this morning (laughs) (laughs) i have vanessa baden kelly here with me today so i wanted to put on some lip gloss it's early in the morning uh we've both had a lot going on i had sabrina kicked her out the door so i could do this interview she's off to preschool uh what was your morning like vanessa um this is my first morning where my husband is on tour so it was um a lot of pre-made meals and a lot of um getting out the door as fast as we could so that writer could make it to daycare on time i could come here and still make it to work on time i know you're fitting this in between drop off for daycare and work <laughs> yep. and we greatly appreciate it. It's no early in the morning. Um, there will probably be a lot of traffic going past. Uh, Waze has sort of ruined our lives. Yes, yes, Waze has. But I have like to like sneak ways to get to work from here because I only oh, yeah. work down like down the street. So I'm right in Hollywood. I know. I'm going to come spy on you. Like, <laughs> Hi, I brought you lunch. <laughs> Which I will gladly take over my pre-made lunch that I've already made for the entire week. Oh my God, that's amazing. I have to. There's no way. How do you do that? Well, like I put seven chicken breasts in the oven and enough, like right now it's like fall root vegetables in the oven and I just portion them out. Can I sign up for your meal plan? <laughs> it's my, my my new side hustle. My husband's on tour side hustle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So everyone, Vanessa, she has a 10 month old son, Ryder. And uh, here's a couple things she loves, right? Obviously her son, community organizing and television and film. As a community organizer, she has worked with Community Coalition, Brave New Films, the Center for Health, Environment and Justice, and Obama for America in 2008. Vanessa trains organizers for the Children Defense Fund's YALT initiative and is one of the original members of the Dream Defenders. She also serves as a consultant for the Trayvon Martin Foundation. Her work in film and media vary from work with Nickelodeon, TV Land, and The Laugh Factory. Currently, she works on the new Netflix original series, Ozark, slated for 2017 release. Okay. You came into our lot of our lives <laughs> when we were little. Yeah. Okay. How would our listeners have first come across you? I was on Nickelodeon's first multicultural show, My Brother and Me, when I was little. And that's as Nickelodeon was starting to diversify all their content. And so the next show, um, I went immediately from My Brother and Me to Gullah Gullah Island. That was a series regular on. And then immediately from that, or simultaneously while doing that, I also was Keenan's little sister on Keenan and Kel, Keenan Thompson, who's now on SNL. So I kind of spent my entire childhood on television. 
is wild. I know. It's really weird. Would kids chase you? Yeah, when I was little. And it was so crazy because my parents never put me in like private school or I was only tutored on set. I went right back to public school, like right when I was done filming. And so my friends had all been my friends since we were four or five years old. And I didn't realize that that wasn't reality once I left our little school district in Florida. And so it was always like surreal. It's like a dual life. That is amazing. And I was a latchkey kid. So like... Oh, wait, so you have to explain that. Yeah, so I, my grandparents raised me. So um, I had an aunt who um, traveled with me while my grandparents worked. And I would go to work in Orlando at the time. And I would be on set for seven, eight months out of the year. And when I would come home, they sent me right back to public school. But... They were still working, so I'd ride my bike to school, open the door for myself, make myself a hot pocket, and do my homework. That's, that must have been so wild to go from such a public existence to also being kind of isolated. Yeah, it, it like. was. But, you know, my parents were—I um, had, like, the opposite of stage parents. And, like, when I say my parents, I talk about my grandparents. So if my grades ever dropped, which they didn't, they would tell producers I was cut from scenes. <laughs> Like, I just didn't have the typical child, like, in Hollywood experience. You did not turn into Lindsay Lohan. I didn't. As we can see from your bio. <laughs> not not to take away from Lohan, but yeah. uh, you're making a difference in the world. Thanks. Okay, so we're talking about race today. There's a great New York Times essay in The Motherlode, uh, and it's called Talking About Racism with Your White Kid. And there's this great quote in that essay uh, by UT professor Rebecca Bigler, and I'll read it. And it's, I think talking about race might be a no pain, no gain thing. If you come out of that conversation and you're not feeling any discomfort or worry or guilt there, it probably wasn't deep enough or honest enough or complex enough. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's really fair. So let's all just get a tummy ache. Yeah, let's <laughs> all start sweating bullets and... It's important, though. It's obviously so important. And so, look, I'm a guinea pig here. I say the wrong thing all the time in almost every aspect of my life. So speaking about race in such a public forum, yeah, it gives me a little bit of a tummy ache. I'm always afraid of offending people, again, in all areas. So this is particularly uh, sensitive I'm wondering if we could kick this off by, can we just say that colorblindness is just total BS? Yeah, it doesn't exist. It absolutely doesn't exist. It especially doesn't exist for black families and um, for families like mine. Uh, when we walk into a room, the first thing that we're doing is scanning the room. And it's it's in, it's inherent. Like, it's nothing that was taught. Our parents didn't teach us this. It's just what you do. You're scanning the room first to see if there's anybody else like you there. Um, because that kind of gives you a little bit of confidence that perhaps where you are is friendly to you and to people that look like you. Um, and if there isn't anybody there that looks like you, you're kind of immediately looking around to see if these are the type of white people that like you. Ooh, okay. So you know what I mean? There. Wait, let's do this. Uh, okay, so what would be the type of white people? So you're, like, you're also profiling. Yeah, we okay. absolutely, like, to a certain degree, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, there's, um, you know, I'm from the South. And so there were certain places where I can walk in and there and, you know, it's completely unfair, but it's also what's kept us alive. And it's a survival method that I can walk into certain places and hear a certain type of Southern drawl and see a certain uniform, I guess, yeah. and know I should turn around like this isn't Ooh. where we should be. 
Do you feel um, comfortable sharing what that kind of uniform might be? Um, you know, in this, I have an idea, but I don't want to yeah. get in trouble with. with uh, I'm from Texas, but yeah, mm, you know, well, it, and there's different things, right? So there are certain um, parts of the South where it's like, you know, the camouflage is like a really big yeah. tip. Off Interesting. For us. And you know, we wear camouflage too, but it's just a particular way in which it's mm-hmm. worn. And also there are just certain areas of the South and this sounds so terrible saying it, but just in like the spirit of transparency, there are also places where, you know, they wouldn't necessarily invite you into their home, but as long as everybody's polite, they don't mind. And so you just have to decide if that's what you want to do that day or not. In LA, it's much different. In LA, you're always pretty cool in the hipster state, in the hipster scene, because it's always cool to have black people there. Like, yeah. kinda, I'm going to get into that too. Yeah, like it's always pretty cool there, but you also know, like, um, that there's a certain type of black person that, like, there's a certain type of we almost have to dual code in our behavior. Okay. So it's like there's a certain type of behavior we have to have in those places. And yeah, I want to yeah. ask you. I just saw the pilot, or which for people that aren't in Los Angeles, the pilot is the first episode of a series, and um, it was HBO series Insecure. That's my friend Issa. Oh my god, she's your friend. Yeah, she's can she really- be my friend? <laughs> and I don't mean that in like, can she be my black friend? I mean, yeah, like- <laughs> yeah no, yeah, that's Issa. So Issa's. Um, She's brilliant. She's a Stanford grad. Um, she's first-generation American. She's really, really brilliant. She's also really, really nice and a really good person. So this is all really exciting. Um, but Issa had a show called Awkward Black Girl that was a web series, and it was on for um, – or it was on YouTube for quite a few years. I mean, it's still there. Everything on the internet lasts forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't freak but, me out with the podcast. But <laughs> she – like, um, right. Oh, my God. Always know I want to edit everything I just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Issa – Awkward Black Girl, which I think anybody who is a fan of Insecure should take a look at Awkward Black Girl. Awkward Black Girl kind of spoke for all of us when it first came out that – you know, there there are complexities and there are layers to being a black person and that it's not just this stereotypical caricature that the media, or I shouldn't even say the media, but that Hollywood tries to portray it right. to be. And what's interesting, um, Donald Glover mm-hmm. uh, recently uh, premiered his show on FX Atlanta, and he's one of the first people to ever have a completely black writing staff. And he said that the reason that he did it is because there were so many nuance to things that only black people could understand that it was the only way to write it. And so, for instance, there's a drug dealer in the show. And when he first presented it, FX wanted to make the drug dealer's home really look like a trap house and like what we stereotypically see drug dealers. And Donald Glover said... No, he's a drug dealer. That's how he makes his living. He can afford a regular apartment. But it's yeah. the, the how white people perceive what a black drug dealer looks like versus what we know drug dealers to look like. Yep. And and it's interesting because I know so many of my friends that are white that they have their dealer or whatever, and their dealer lives in a regular yeah, apartment totally. or house. One <laughs> of our <laughs> our guests, uh, Bridget Maloney Sinclair, she's a frequent guest, and she did the Understanding Montessori episode with me recently. Everyone can check her out on the uh, HBO series High Maintenance that her brother-in-law created and directed and plays the drug dealer and and like yeah I mean it's a totally different vibe yeah and it's uh, but like if it's, it's like not, oh it's a black drug dealer it must mean it must this. mean a crack house which is also it's so boring it's so boring but and it's I, not real like, it's, it's not, real. not real it's not real and it's just it's just laziness yeah on the part of 
you know, creative people to just keep pigeonholing. Absolutely. And uh, I'm also excited that Justin Simeon is going to have his TV Dear series, White Dear White People. Yeah. We went to high school together. Oh, good for you. Uh, we... So you know a really nice person again. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know yeah. another nice person. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, Justin, Simeon, and I were in school for, sca- uh, school for scandal. I was Lady Teasel. Got we it. were married. Um, <laughs> no, no, actually we had an affair. Ooh. I was married to Harris Whittles, uh, another <laughs> comedy writer. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, um, we had a thing going in, in the Got play. It. Yeah. In the I've play. only ever met Justin once at an event, but, um, one of the producers from Dear White People, Lena Waith, I've met her on a number of occasions mm-hmm. and she's. Another person who's just extremely nice and just helpful and just blazing trails. Now she's on Aziz and Sorry's right. show. And she's... Which, by the way, Harris Whittles was one of the original people there you working go. on that. It's small world. And see, it's a small world even with Black people. Like, we yeah. all really do share very similar experiences, but we also share very different experiences. Right. And that's, like, the importance of these types of conversations. And so the reason I brought up Insecure at the beginning was um, I was reading a blog about it and the term code switching came up and you had just mentioned that. Can you talk to us about code switching? So um, code switching in like layman's terms is basically uh, being able to speak a dialect of a language when you're in one group. And speaking, I guess, what's more proper, considered the king's English when you're with another group. Mm -hmm. Um, And for many uh, children of color, both black and Hispanic, and I'm sure others, but these are the ones that I know best, code switching is like necessary for survival. I mean, if you are going to some really great preparatory school, then when you go there, you can't speak slang because you're immediately considered to be less intelligent or not cut of the same cloth as they are. But when you go back to your um, neighborhood, if you, you know, if you live in a predominantly black or a predominantly predominantly um, Latino neighborhood, or even just around your family, many times we'll find that in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our social clubs, not everybody may necessarily have been afforded the same preparatory, like, education, or they're getting a really, really great education, but they're around a lot of people that are of the same color of them or the same culture, and they don't necessarily have to code switch. And so if you go in and you don't understand certain words or certain phrases or or even just, I, I, I hate to say it, but like cadences, you are an outcast in your own home and are un- amongst your own people. So for many of us, we teach our kids to code switch and many of us learn to code switch on our own. If you attend um, a predominantly white college like I did, which we call PWIs, you learn to code switch. You learn that when you're with a bunch of white people, you speak more similarly to them. And when Because you get if home, you went home and you spoke like you spoke at college, that would be... Well, it would it wouldn't be bad, but you just would be. Would you feel like an imposter or like you're putting something no, on? No, but for instance, um, you know, when especially in the South, and I keep using the South um, as because we have such a different dialect there. Um, we're here; everything's a little more non-regional dialect. Um, but like in the South, there's just so much slang that's used and it is in it's used it's the finnas and the y'alls and the all of that which anybody from the south black or white knows to just be very normal language i get slammed for using y'all on a daily basis yeah, I do too. but i stand by it <laughs> right it's easier it's useful yeah, right, it is but the finnas and the y'alls in white southern drawl is just considered southern the finnas and the y'all in black southern drawl is considered uneducated and so a, a young black person or an old black person for that matter can't use that 
in predominantly white populations because they're immediately considered uneducated. When you go back home, if you're saying, will you all just come into the room? What are you doing? We're being casual. Why right, are you, you're putting on you air. Not? Exactly. So you have to learn to do that. And that's actually been the argument for Ebonics for years. So it got this really bad rap when it, when people were first discussing it because um, – it was seen like, no, you need to teach people how to talk right. <laughs> you see the Southern. Like, you need like to teach it. people how to talk right. But what it realistically is doing is considering Ebonics a dialect, mm-hmm. um, just like a Jamaican Patois. And so if you have children that are coming, and children read how they speak. So if you have children that are coming in from an area where they never are around anything but Ebonics or, or, right. or you know, their cultural slang— um, and you put them into a school, you've immediately put them at a disadvantage because they don't even understand how you're speaking because they're not around that. And so if you make Ebonics a dialect, what it then does is it takes small children and it teaches them, it, it gives you the resource to be able to teach the King's English as a second language. Wow. Are and they doing that? They tried to, and there was a huge national pushback because right. they were like, we're not, people just need to learn to speak correctly. Right. So that's the context of it that I don't think when the news was reporting on it some years ago, they ever quite explained. Yeah, there's a lot of explaining that doesn't get explained (laughs) in the media. I'd like to speak to you for a moment about uh, what what you're going to say to your son when the time comes (sighs) about officers. So your son and my nephew, they're both named Ryder. Yeah, They're both a... Adorable little munchkins. <laughs> Your son, unlike my nephew, uh, he's black and he's at a 21 times greater risk of being shot by an officer. So if cops break up a party that they're both at, my nephew can run and your son yes, cannot. So what will you teach your rider if he's ever approached by an officer? You know, it's heartbreaking because I don't know right now. Um, and it's a conversation that we have as often as we can without things getting too heavy in the house. But it's a conversation we're having a lot. You know, obviously, my husband is also black. And so we're also having the conversation with him. Right. You know, what do you do? Um, and, you know, there were obviously coming from a background of social justice, there was a time when I felt like when I had children, I was going to teach them to know their rights. And if an officer doesn't have a warrant, he's not allowed to search you and call the uh, you know, call me or call an attorney immediately and, you know, don't let anybody take your rights away. Now we're in survival mode. And so it's like, do whatever they say. It does not make you less of a man. I know it's going to suck. I know it's going to touch your manhood, but I need to get you out alive to fight for you. And now that's not enough. Like you can do everything that's being told to you. And if you are a threat, then you're just a threat and your skin color is your weapon. And so it's really daunting and I'm not quite sure what I'm going to tell him yet because I never want him to cower. Like I don't want him to live his life being feeling like he has to make himself smaller to be less intimidating. Right. But I also want him to survive. So it's this this weird and heartbreaking and challenging um conversation that we keep having to have and unfortunately we just haven't arrived at an answer yet thank you vanessa after this super quick break we're going to be talking about daniel tiger what vanessa is looking for when it comes to writer's education and how to keep our kids from being brainwashed by society's beauty standards we'll be right back 
Sabrina is downloading books all the time now. She has over 200 digital stories available through the Speakaboo's library, sorted by her favorite categories, bugs, dinosaurs, and princesses. It's also got her favorite characters like Thomas the Tank Engine and Sesame Street. This is a great interactive digital library, the only one, designed for pre-K through second grade. Once it's downloaded, you can access it offline, which means wine-free car rides for me now, and uh, I'm a lot less stressed out about our upcoming trip to New York. The rich illustrations, animated characters, touchscreen interactions bring the stories to life. Teachers are using this program in their classrooms, I asked. I also personally want to mention that educational psychologist Dr. Alice Wilder, one of the world's leading experts on learning through media and formative research, she's one of the gurus behind this thing. Every aspect of Speakaboo's content and product design is anchored in fundamental principles of literacy development and the child's point of view. Okay, that's for the mamas. For the kids, it's just super, super fun. It's available to download for mobile devices through iTunes for iOS, Google Play for Android, and speakaboost.com for the web. So check out those app stores or head to speakaboost.com. There's a special Atomic Moms offer. You'll receive a choice of a 7- or a 30-day free trial when you subscribe. Go do a test run with your kids today. In regards to the beauty standards, <sighs> uh, like just, well, I've got a little girl. <clears throat> um, and at this point... You know, she's so darn cute that everyone's like, she's so pretty. And I and her hair is so amazing. And, uh, and it's all true. And uh, I love to egoically, like, just take those compliments as my own. Yeah. But uh, I'm also sure to be like, you're really smart. Yeah. And uh, I love how strong-willed you are. And uh, you're so brave. With a son, how are you going to make him force him to appreciate <laughs> all types of beauty because this is a yeah. messed up world it is a messed up world so with beauty standards it's, it's, it's again it's just really tricky and these are some of the things that i don't think people consider about race when they're thinking about it um i think i told you in another conversation that we had that you know i'm i'm mixed race and i identify black one, because I look the most black, but also because growing up, you kind of just go whoever to whatever group has the same hair as you. And I have more stereotypically African-American hair. Um, and so the hair became an issue in high school and it was who had the longest hair and it be in, you know, who had the longest, straightest hair. And so you were doing all kinds of relaxers and hot presses. And was there any pressure from Nickelodeon about that as well? No, they didn't care. They they really didn't. Man, it was, I was hoping there was some dirt. Oh, no, no, not at my time. There <laughs> might be now, but, um, but yeah, no. So, you know, it, it turned into that. And so now there's this like really big movement for natural hair with African-American women where just wear your natural texture and it's beautiful. And it, and it is period. But much of it, what we're finding with young black men is rhetoric and they understand that it should be beautiful and it is in theory, but they're still very much attracted to European beauty standards. And so that's really difficult for me as a mother because I want my son to be able to look at somebody and say, she's really pretty. If, you know, he decides that he likes women, but like, right, right, right. like I want him to be able to look at somebody and say like, she's really pretty and it doesn't have anything to do with how long her or straight her hair is. Um, and that's tough um, for many of the things that you tell your daughter, like I really love how strong willed you are. I really love how smart you are. Smart, strong willed black women are considered angry, independent, stubborn black women. Mm -hmm. And so 
I want him to like smart girls. But that's kind of that the idea of this angry black woman or this stubborn black woman or this sassy black woman is so has so much of a negative connotation that it's like the girls I want him to like, we almost are going to have to train him to like. Because right. the society is telling him don't like those. Well, and even in the shows we mentioned earlier, and this was also in an essay, so it's not completely my original thought. <laughs> I'm always afraid of plagiarizing on the podcast, which is ridiculous. But uh, the idea that those female leads, they're single, right? Yeah. They're yeah. always single. So the strong, the strong, smart black woman is single. Yeah. And that's tough. And that's really, really tough. And so... Um, you know, I have a little brother right now who's playing college football and um, the area of Florida that we grew up in was an Air Force base. And so growing up, I had a really good mix of people. But by the time 9-11 happened when I was in ninth grade. and Oh, my God, you're down. so much younger than me. <laughs> well, imagine now there are people that are born that 9-11 didn't even happen yet. Like um, our children. Yeah. <laughs> Like Although them. my daughter was born on 9-11. Oh, huh. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so, like, after 9-11, they closed down part of the Air Force Base, and we lost, like, all of the black people. So only those of us who were there stayed, um, like, who had been there and weren't in the yeah. military. And so my brother grew up in that part of Florida with only white people. And so... He just only dates white girls. And when we started, you know, kind of having the conversation with him, like, what about black girls? Like, yeah. And like wait, how do you girls? ask? Can you tell me? Can you share with me? Like, oh, how I ask him exactly like that. I'm like, say, why don't you like black girls? Yeah. <laughs> or, and he's half Puerto Rican. I'm like, not even Puerto Rican girls. You don't like any Hispanic girls. And his consistent answer is, I, it's not that I don't think they're pretty. I don't like how they act. And all the stuff he would bring up is exactly how me and my mom are. And so I'm like, <laughs> wait a second. Do you not like us? But me and my brother are best friends. And so he was like, no, because if they acted a little bit more like you. And so as we would go down like the line of what it was, mm-hmm. what it really, what it really boiled down to at the end. And even he was able to admit it was, no, I think that it's how they look. I think I just want he longer hair. Like, but we had to get there. Like he wasn't, yeah. you know. And what's crazy is my brother is, every bit a young man of color. Like he only listens to hip hop. He's got like all the new Jordans. And so it's not that he's less black. Right. But he really only learned to like white girls. And so now that he's in college, like I scour like his Facebook and his Instagram and I'm like, she's cute. Go date her. And it's just like broaden his horizons. I don't care if he comes home with a white girl, but I want to know that it's because he liked her, not because everybody else was ruled out. So I don't know how I'm going to do that for writer. My goal is... Um, I had a real, I had an admissions counselor at one of the schools around here tell me, and, and it was one of the best things that I've heard. She said, um, and this is a preschool, this, uh, it's a preschool that's attached to a bigger school. Oh, gotcha. And she said, um, she was black and she said, I would suggest to you that if you are deciding to go the independent school route for writer, that you should pick one, one place where he's going to be in a predominantly white area and one place where he's going to be in a predominantly black. It can't be both. She was like, so if you're going to go the independent school route, he's by the time he's in fifth or sixth grade, he's going to be one of the only black people in his grade. So if I were you and it was something that you could do, I would have you and your husband move back to Baldwin Hills or to Inglewood or someplace where his community is black. So he's not just completely bombarded by other cultures. 
so that you're able to get both and yes. basically have a hybrid life. Yeah. She is suggesting supporting the duality so that you can have a well-rounded child. Exactly. And a child who doesn't hate himself. You know what I mean? Like a child gotcha. that, because at some point he's going to realize it and the other children are going to realize it. And so it's really important even for us, for, you know, him to see, to him to go to the best school possible. But it's also important to us that he doesn't view Black people the way that maybe some of his school friends will have learned to view Black people. He's going to see, we're not going to be the unicorns. And he doesn't think we're the unicorns. He's going to see other Black homeowners. He's going to see, you know, other Black children who are learning what he's learning. His only Black friends are not going to be on his sports team. Like, he's going to see that there's there's both. It can he can exist in the world. There's a place for him. I know you want to give a quick shout out to Daniel Tiger, correct? Ah, <laughs> yes, Daniel Big Tiger fan. rocks my world. Like his teacher is black. He's got a little homegirl who's got Afro puffs. Like she makes me so happy. <laughs> okay. So here's my question. How do we as mothers actively reach out to one another? Uh, without seeming like the bougie liberal, like creepsters at the park who are like, hi, <laughs> so we'd like some more diversity in our life so we can assuage our white guilt. Will you, can we funny. do a play date? Like, how, what's what's the deal? Because I honestly think that that is something that is preventing relationships from happening because you don't want to seem like you're seeking out people because of their color, that seems racist. But then we kind of are for the very purpose of making sure that our kids are well-rounded. You know, I've had like the extreme pleasure of being part of a bunch of mommy groups. And my mommy groups range from all black mommy groups to all white mommy groups. And I'm like the unicorn there or pretty diverse ones that are like in, in industry related ones are my favorite because everybody's just kind of like and we're funny yes <laughs> everybody's just kind of like whatever we're in one together yeah yeah we are and so um that actually a lot of the guests on this podcast probably are in it as well but one of the things that i really like about mommy groups is you don't first connect about race you first connect about whether you're going babies only or whole layer hip. You're good. You first connect about my kids having a latch problem or which stroller to buy. And once like there's kind of rapport when something triggers the race conversation, it can happen more fluidly. It's never not uncomfortable, but it it happens more fluidly. And you can look at me and say, well, that is complete bull because I know your husband and I know Ryder and I know that this isn't fair. Or, you know, recently um, a judge ruled it constitutional for jobs to say that dreadlocks are not allowed at, at work. It's constitutional. It's discriminatory, but it's constitutional, apparently. Um, what? And so my husband has these locks that go down his back. And I think for many people who have never been around anybody who has locks or they've only seen it maybe on TV or whatever, they could very easily say, no, I totally get it. I totally get how that's not professional. But if you and I have rapport and you know my husband, it would strike you differently because you'd be like, that's crazy. That's one of the most professional men I've ever met. And his hair is always neat. And his hair is, you know what I mean? And you would think that that was insane. But for many people, unless they we've built that rapport 
on something completely non-race related, then we can't really like advocate for each other. So again, I'm, I'm a huge fan of mommy groups, but how you get around people that are not in, that are not like in your like regular circle, I really think that we just have to seek out each other's areas. LA's super segregated. It's so it's, segregated. Here's, here's a fun fact for you. I'm ready. Uh, Los Angeles has the highest population of African-Americans in the United States, only second to Kings County, which is Brooklyn. And you can walk around Los Angeles all day and never see a black person. And that's because they're all in South L.A. And so many of us are afraid to go to South L.A. because we hear all these terrible stories. We consider it, quote unquote, South Central, which South L.A. doesn't like to be called South Central. They're South L.A. Um, And, you know, we have these horrific stories for many of us that remember the riots and we have all of these things. But just to put some things into perspective, I live in Glendale earlier this week. We were stuck not being able to turn on our street because a whole block of Howard was cut, was shut down because a man had shot someone and was threatening to shoot himself in police. So there were like negotiators and like four or five helicopters. And I mean, they were just completely shut down. We couldn't move. Seems to happen every week now. We and didn't, in Hollywood too. We didn't know what it was. And so we were, and we saw KTLA there. So we were right. like, okay, the news is going to be, the news is talking about a shooting in South LA. But we were on our street in Glendale where a man was literally threatening to shoot himself and police officers after already shooting someone. And there was zero police coverage. If we didn't look on Twitter to look about the guy who, like, he listens to the police scanner and, like, tweets what they're saying, yeah. we would have had no clue what was going on. We only knew because that guy tweets. And so it's this implicit bias that just happens. I, I, I hate to always blame the media because it's not just the media. But it's this implicit bias where we get this idea in our minds that— if we're going to have mixed friends, they have to come to our neighborhood because their, their neighborhood isn't safe. Mm. But it really is safe. And I have my doula, big shout out to Dana Nassau, who's the best doula in Los Angeles. But my doula purposely moved her, her family to West Adams. And she was like, I need them to have diversity in their life. I need them to. And she's white. And she's white. And she has been such a vocal advocate on Facebook, but whatevs. Like, yeah. she's been such a vocal advocate. And the best thing is her husband is a pastor. And she has been even taking on, like, church people as they've been spewing racism. She's like, I I share your faith. And I'm telling you, you're wrong. Like, yep. this, isn't, this isn't right. And I really attribute a lot of it to her living in a community that's mixed and choosing that. She knew what the community was going to be, and she chose that. So where do I go? There are a lot of um, organizations uh, based out of South LA, based out of West Adams, and um, many of them have either, and, and I'm speaking for like our kids' ages, They many of them have like either play groups or play dates or groups of of the of that type. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to you about this before, and I will forever and always shout them out, is Community Coalition. Community Coalition um, of South LA is probably, in my opinion, very strong opinion. <laughs> the best uh, organization in Los Angeles, nonprofit organization, community organizing organization in Los Angeles. And Community Coalition has a lot of programs that help uh, kinship caregivers. So people that are taking care of their children for their parents, whether it's aunts and uncles or grandparents. And so they put on a lot of programs and also are connected to a lot of programs that provide resources for those parents. And so those are also, those are play date organizations. Those are, those are organizations that have like monthly classes and like 
all those other things. So just like this weekend, I'm taking Ryder to Gymboree. This uh, The next weekend, we're going to one in South LA that I purposed to find so that Ryder would be around other little black kids. And so it's just kind of making it a concentrated effort. And it sucks. It sucks in a city like LA where... You know, I mean, I don't see anyone anyway. That's the, you know what I mean? Like in this car culture, we don't see anyone. So it does take effort. And it it takes a lot of effort and also just purpose or intention. It It, takes intention. intention. That's the right word. It takes intention and it does take sacrifice because you're a mom, I'm a mom. And you know that the few times that you do have a play day and you're able to like really organize one, it's also kind of for you. Like you need to be around other moms and you need to like kind of have some interaction Mm -hmm. with somebody who's Daniel Tiger isn't their favorite TV show. And so um, that's tough if you're going to, you know, haul your kid 45 minutes across town to expose your child to a new culture, a new race. And you don't have anything in common with the moms there yet. And will yet. Exactly. (laughs) And so does it just take having the guts to be like, hey, I, I want to do this or will, I guess the fear is also the judgment of like, what are you doing here? And Welcome why to are our you, life. Right? <laughs> you no, know what let's I mean? talk about that for a second. Like it's, you face this every day. So yeah, it's, it's the fear of not being accepted. The fear of like, does it seem like I'm trying, you know, not me, I should stop saying about me. Cause then I really freeze up. But like, I think a lot of, fears people have would be, I don't want to seem like I'm rescuing someone. I don't, you know, yeah. those things that and I think are so we, charged. We, we deal with the same thing. And not but rescue, we, but like, do you know no, what I'm totally saying? Get it. Can you translate this I, for I me? I can totally translate it. You don't want to look like a white savior. Like, it's not yeah. like I'm coming in here to validate this place or validate my family. Or, That's it. Yeah. Pat myself on the back yeah. about how diverse I am and, and frankly, open-minded. frankly, you might get that. And you, no one could be shocked if that was the initial reaction, because, yeah, that happens a lot. And I think it would take consistency. It's just like, no, actually, she's here, like, every other week. So she's cool. You know what I mean? Yes. But, like, it really is. It's our reality, too. Like, you know, even the I'm sh- the independent school route, the way that I, and it, I say narrow down, like, I really have a choice for who's going to accept my kid. But you the way- have choices. I hope so. But the way that I narrowed down the schools that I liked, and of course, I'm, I planned writer's entire life out. So the way that I narrowed <laughs> yeah. down the schools that I liked were the schools, not only the schools that showed diversity. And I was able to see like by stalking parents and seeing who was on their Instagram feeds, mm-hmm. but also because That's a, a lot of the schools will list um the colleges and institutions that their that their students matriculated to, and only two um, listed historically black colleges. Really, although all of the schools that have black students send kids there, only two recognize that as an accomplishment. What? And so it's like when I when I was speaking to admissions counselors, late they would later be like, "Oh no, no, we did send kids to HBCUs, but it wasn't listed because it's not." to them considered as good as Harvard or Yale or Columbia. But the two schools that listed it, when I actually finally started speaking to admissions counselors, they were so gung-ho because they had so many 
black children that had attended the schools that they recognized how big a deal it is yeah. to send your kid to Spelman or to Howard. Yeah. And to me, I need, I got goosebumps just telling you about it. Of like, course. I need that. I Absolutely. Need, I need a school At that our, recognizes I that. I went to a performing visual arts high school in Houston and it was unbelievable. And that was one of the things that we're most proud of. Yeah. Is, and but here there it was also schools. one of the first integrated schools I think in America. Yeah, but that's not at least considered in Texas. A, it's not considered like a. It's not considered an achievement here, and I want that to be an achievement it for is. my son. And so I immediately started giving money to HBCUs. I didn't attend one, but I was like, I don't care. Like I need, we need to foster this type of environment for him. That that is a, like if my son went to Morehouse or FAMU, I would be ecstatic. And I want him to go to a school that would also be ecstatic and that would see him as an accomplishment. Um, and so it's even that, right? So it's even you were able to tell immediately how much administration had, how many people of color administration hadn't worked with because they were able to see that that was an accomplishment. And so when I, you know, if you try to go to some of these other schools, um, which obviously that takes nothing away from how great they are. But like you try to go to some of these other schools and you walk in and that's your goal. People are looking at you the same way that they would look at you walking into a Harambe drum circle in South LA. It's like your goal isn't the same as mine. I'm here for safety and to give my kids the best life possible. And you're here as like a science experiment, you know? And at least with us, Wait, explain that a little more. Yeah, like sometimes, and and people feel like, I've seen this one too many times, but a lot of times people feel like a Black person coming to an independent school or a Black person coming to a a school that's just very highly selective. Private school. Oh, yeah, that it's like they just took one of our spots. And the school is doing it as a as a science experiment, and it's just basically to make sure that they can always put that there's diversity there. Meanwhile, there's like 200 black families versus 3,000 white families just trying to get into one, hoping that we can maybe get, you know, something can happen to where if for those of us who can't afford it, that we can please give us financial aid so I don't have to send my kid to LAUSD if I can help it. Or like... Or if we can't afford it, just I want to go wherever they're like best suited. And you're always having to like kind of go up against that. Like you're on, you're the one on financial aid. You're the one, like your kid is getting bus or getting like brought in on, in your Prius while everybody else is getting brought in in their Mercedes. And you're just. Well, and for our listeners, that's in LA, right? Like right, the Prius right. thing. Because a lot of people, a lot of white moms right now are like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Prius? I would kill for a Prius. Yeah. But it's like, you know. It's it's just this idea of it's just this idea of people feeling like affirmative action is taking their spots when in reality, like we're just vying for it and we're trying to convince other black families like we can do better edu- with our education. Like I know it seems like it's out of your reach. Like I know that it seems crazy to pay more for your kids high school than you did for your entire collegiate career, but it's going to pay off. Like we're trying to convince our friends to do that. And so, you know what I mean? So it's like this, you're looked at as a science experiment. You took a space and the the, the totality of who you are in that system is very r- rarely seen. And so you're just, you're kind of looking at each other like, you you know, you, you and your partner, if you have a partner, kind of looking at each other like, 
we just got to get him through it. <laughs> like, if we can just get him through it and he actually likes who he is at the end of it, like, we did our job. Well, thank you so much, Vanessa, for coming on today. I look forward to continuing this conversation with you. Yeah. <clears throat> I might uh, want your company in a future drum circle. If I- <laughs> We can definitely go to a drum circle together. And again, I appreciate your openness and your honesty and your willingness to discuss difficult things with uh, with this white mom who uh, is just, you know, trying to get information out there for everyone else. Be a better parent to my child. Yeah. Uh, and a, an overall better mother in this world. So definitely. Well, thank you for having this segment. It's really important. Yeah. So everyone sign up on iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms or use the Purple Podcast app on your phone to subscribe. You can also have access to our 102 episodes. Find us on AtomicMoms.com. Share this with your mom groups on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you all on social media at Atomic Moms. Okay, everybody. Until next week. As we always say, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. Mm -hmm.